Hello world, this is Byron Dieter, your host of Cloud Giants. I hope this episode finds you healthy and in relatively good spirits, especially considering that we're coming at you during the ongoing coronavirus lockdown. Because of the immediate and significant impact of COVID-19 on the global economy and for entrepreneurs everywhere, we actually decided to shuffle the schedule a bit and we're breaking from the usual format and show flow to drop in a special bonus episode that is specifically designed to address the executive considerations you're likely having during this crisis. After 11 years of bull market, we've hit a recession, and it's already having dramatic impact on businesses large and small. Now, building a startup during a downturn isn't impossible, but it sure is challenging. My fellow partner, Jeremy Levine, and I want to provide entrepreneurs with the advice from those who've been there before. So today we're pulling together three of the very best entrepreneurs and executives on the planet to answer many of the questions you undoubtedly have in these uncertain times. You'll be hearing not only from myself and Jeremy, but also Toby Lutke of Shopify, Ben Silberman of Pinterest, and Jeff Lawson of Twilio. They were selected not only for their leadership, but also because they have very different business models and customer segmentation, so you'll get some different perspectives, ranging from a leading SaaS application and payments platform, to a pioneer in the API economy and the past meets SaaS world, to one of the most popular consumer applications in the world that's a heavy user of Cloud IaaS. This format is different than usual, both because we have these multiple superstar guests, but also because it first aired as a live webcast where we had thousands of attendees and over 600 questions submitted from the audience that was eager to hear the wisdom and personal experience from these executives during the prior 2008 and 2000 recessions. At Bessemer Venture Partners, we are fortunate to partner with each of these businesses for their seed and Series A rounds in the teeth of the last recession from 2008 to 2011. So we saw firsthand how their intense focus on customers, product, and team allowed them to build massive public companies that are now leaders in their respective industry segments. In this conversation, we cover a range of topics, but we primarily focus on how Toby, Ben, and Jeff built their companies during the last recession, the advice on building great teams, and their guiding leadership principles and founding values that still drive their companies today. Please let me know what you think of this episode. Leave reviews, rate it wherever you're listening. If you rate and review Cloud Giants, it really helps, and I'd love to get this episode into the earbuds of as many founders as possible. And if you are a founder yourself looking for resources and advice on how to weather this economic climate, we have additional resources for you at bvp.com forward slash COVID-19, where we've compiled answers to some of your most pressing questions, as well as the usual bvp.com forward slash cloud resource library. Okay, now onto the show and this great discussion. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining us for our live webcast here with three all-stars of the tech industry. Uh, we've got uh, Toby Lodke from Shopify, founder and CEO, Ben Silberman, founder and CEO of Pinterest, and Jeff Lawson, founder and CEO of Twilio. Uh, I'm Byron Dieter, a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and I'm here today with my partner, Jeremy Levine, uh, and we are absolutely thrilled to have this group in general but all the more so today in these chaotic times. And so thank you fellows for coming together and joining us today. Byron, thanks Jeremy. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, hey Jeff, uh, what was, uh, take us back to uh, 2008, Lehman Brothers collapsed um, and uh, where were you right then? 
it's a good place to start actually you know thinking back to the last crisis that, that uh, as a society at least in the united states in particular endured it was global 2008 so i had just started twilio actually uh, in 2008 uh, we started the company right at the very beginning of 2008 we spent the whole spring just building a prototype working with developers getting feedback on that prototype and iterating very quickly on, on what we were building and i remember that summer rolled around our plan was to raise money and to go out and raise a seed round, uh, we went out and we couldn't raise a dime. We spent the whole summer fundraising and couldn't raise, we literally like, we didn't even have a bank account because we didn't have any money to put in it. And at the end of that whole thing, I remember like there was one uh, prominent Silicon Valley investor, early stage investor, where we actually thought we were like set. We had the full partner meeting, um, you know, arranged the Monday morning meeting, which is you know, mostly a formality at that point where we thought they were gonna lead around for us. And the, um, the night before Lehman Brothers collapsed and we walked in and this formal formality of a meeting that was supposed to be them you know, cutting us a great check and being an amazing lead investor turned into, sorry guys, like we just, you know, we're not investing now. Uh, so the whole summer went by, we didn't raise a dime and the three founders, we, we looked at each other and we said, you know, this is a stupid idea. You know, we tried, we talked to all these really smart investors. Um, and uh, they all said either like, we don't understand the idea, developers, what's the deal with that? But a lot of them just said, look, you know, we just are cutting checks. And we said, uh, is this just stupid of us to start a business? And what we decided was, no, we're gonna follow our customers. Our customers are telling us we're on the right track. We should be listening to customers. And if we're right about that, then obviously the investor thing will work itself out. And sure enough, that is what happened. And so I, you know, I think that you know, my takeaway from 2008 Obviously, we were a very different company. We were three founders, no revenue, not even a bank account, uh, but just building an idea and working with customers. But my takeaway is that no matter where you're at as a company, uh, focusing on your customers is the right path. It's not everything. You need other things to work out too. And there's a lot of luck involved. But the one thing you know you always need is to serve your customers. In fact, we wrote a document to guide our, um, our execution during the, the COVID crisis here. And the way we'd articulated it was serving our customers during this uh, crisis to ensure their success and contribute to their ability to survive and thrive, thus building loyalty. And that's how we uh, focused our uh, customer facing aspects during this crisis. Maybe Ben, uh, can you answer the same question? Set the stage a little bit for the audience uh, where you were 2008, uh, 09, 2010. Yeah, so I was, um, I was out in California. I had moved out uh, in end of 2006. Uh, and I had gotten a job at Google, which was kind of my dream job. Um, I was in operations there. Um, and then I had always been tinkering with stuff on the side and had never really pulled the trigger on, on going out full time. And actually, I have this really vivid memory of my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. She's like, you know, you should just like go, you should go do that or just stop talking about it. She's like, either is cool, but, but, but I need you to pick one. And so I talked to some friends who at Google and I'm like, I'm going to go do this. And they said, oh, just, just get out there, get started. Uh, we'll be there in a, in a flash. And I left um, and then the economy like really, like the bottom fell out. And I remember all these folks that were like, I'm going to get in that pool with you. Like suddenly Google was looking like a pretty awesome job. <laughs> so they were like, I'm so proud of you, man. Like that was awesome. <laughs> but, but our job is really great. And so that was actually a really tough time. And actually we went through a bunch of, a bunch of different ideas. Um, you know, I can go into fundraising at some point, but but I really remember back then the thing that I was super excited about was you know the iPhone had just come out. Uh, I, I literally remember it like one of those like pivotal moments in your life. I remember watching on QuickTime the live cast of Steve Jobs presenting the iPhone and just thinking like this is amazing. 
And we, we decided that we were going to build a shopping app uh, for the iPhone. I was like, you know, no one's going to install so many apps. There were all these catalogs like piling up in my mailbox. I was like, if somebody builds that, it's going to work. And we were just way too early. Like the SDK wasn't ready. It was really hard to build. It was really hard to find people that were building. Like back then, the only people that were great iPhone developers were all building games like Tap Tap Revenge. Um, and so we realized that we needed to raise money. Um, but like Jeff, it was a really, it was a really, really tough time. And we were pretty darn shameless. Like we, we just like pitched everybody that's ever been pitched, like alumni directories, like people who had never done tech investments. And I think we pitched for almost a year. Um, and when we got, we got our break, because at some point I started entering business school business plan competitions, um, where my friends were going to business school and they had like a cash prize. And we entered the NYU one and we got second place. And second place was a meeting with a venture capitalist. That was the, that was the prize. Um, and that venture capitalist said, um, you know what we will do your first $250,000 provided that you can get the other 250 uh, lined up on pretty favorable terms. I would say uh, that investor did really well. We sold about a third of the company for that first half million, but what I remember is as soon as we had that, we had been really maniacal about tracking every single person that we'd ever met with. People that promised us like $5,000 checks, 10,000 checks. And we went back and we're like, the deal's moving. We've got this famous venture capitalist. Are you in or are you out? And I think in fundraising, one of the things I realized looking back was that had we not been super maniacal about the follow-up and keeping all of those contacts warm, we would never have been able to call on those folks. And had we not been able to get those other folks on board, we wouldn't have been able to get the other half there. And so things are really bleak right now. And I think that they will get better. Like people will end up investing again, but I would be prepared for a lot of no's. And we, we had investors literally come in, take the meeting and be like, I'm putting my money into gold. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's interesting. Like, why did you take this meeting? <laughs> like, like you, <laughs> we, did, we did tell you that we're making a, a phone app. So Casper should be doing really well right now with everybody putting money into mattresses. <laughs> totally, totally. So yeah, uh, that was like a little color. Then I want to know who won first prize in the in the contest that you won second prize in. Uh, it was actually a really cool startup. It was called Butterbeads, and they were providing a private alternative to public school lunches. Really cool group of people. Um, really awesome founder. So they were. And great. their prize was they didn't have to take the meeting with VCs, right? <laughs> I think they got. I think they got both. They got cash plus the meeting. But we got the we got the meeting, and I'm still really grateful that that we got a chance to do that. So there, there are several things in there we want to unpack over the course of the hour with fun, fundraising, uh, your pivot and evolution, et cetera. But uh, let's get Toby to set the stage here as well with uh, the early days of Shopify. Walk us through the 2008, 2009 timeframe where you were. Yeah, gladly. Um, I was uh, building Shopify in, 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 uh, where I started in Ottawa, Canada. And um, I, uh, around 2008 was actually around the time that I was first uh, came to Silicon Valley to, to do some fundraising. Shopify uh, launched in 2006, uh, so it was around for about, you know, on, on the market for two years. And we were charging for Shopify and it was making some money and we were about, uh, I think, eight or nine people. So, uh, and that sort of matched our income. Like uh, we basically, this was very much a lifestyle company. I, I think at least Silicon Valley calls it lifestyle. I, I tend to call it a company, uh, but we were trying to make money and uh, not spend the money we didn't have. And um, every time we would get more customers, we might make a con we might hire someone new or we might 
do some advertising or something like this, but sort of the decision making. And I was um, uh, thinking about Shopify maybe turning into a venture and uh, was in Silicon Valley and had a bunch of great meetings. But at some point, did, did either of you get that Sequoia deck, the famous one, the the the, the Times rest in peace. Grave, yeah. the gravestone. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I got that like instead of a meeting with Sequoia on the same day. <laughs> uh, um, so the deck went out and we canceled the meetings basically. Um, so that didn't work, and um, I, I I went back to Canada and said, okay, well, this is not going to work. Um, there's no money here. Um, one of two things is going to happen. The way we have been doing things is either going to take us through these change times or we die trying. Like it doesn't really change anything to before or after. It might just end up being harder. It actually ended up trans transpiring that uh, Shopify was sort of, it, it was there, it was reasonably good and it was never the problem. Like no one was going out of business because they, they, they had Shopify, which was a well-designed, uh, affordable online store. Like uh, it's a lot of people actually ended up deciding, hey, I need to sell online to get a second income stream. Um, um, we ended up actually doing quite well in like sort of in the rearview mirror, but it was super stressful at times. And I, the first thing I told everyone is like, hey, every like please delete every plan because I believe that um, uh, planning is something you do when you have a variable company on on top of a uh, stable market, uh, then the plans become useful. Um, but uh, once the market is crazy, then the plans are no longer useful and uh, planning, however, ends up always being valuable. So we ended up turning very sort of reactionary day, almost day to day saying like, hey, what is the best way to spend the next hour and the next hour and next hour? And frankly, this is exactly what the world looks like now as well for us. So it, it, it definitely, to at least some degree, um, it seems like we've uh, we've seen another one of those before. Excellent. And maybe for uh, for folks that weren't in your positions or don't fully remember 08, we've got just two setup slides. The only slides we're going to uh, look at today. Jeremy's just going to set the stage a little bit in terms of what the world was like in 2008 as a reminder for folks, and then draw some learnings from that as we go into the discussion for what we may take away for the 2020 era now. So really quickly, that line from the red arrow up and to the right shows the remarkable 11-year bull run that's made us all immune to what a crisis actually is. But as you can see in the very top right-hand corner of this chart, that's essentially the COVID crisis so far. And, uh, and if you look at the 2008-2009 time period, you can see it was quite dramatic. And so the, the three founders in this call have been through um, hell to some extent, at least measured by the stock market. Um, there are other ways of measuring a crisis too. And if you skip to the next slide, although the stock market decline was more dramatic than the previous crisis 11 years ago, this one's happening even faster. And so the blue line here is the current COVID crisis and the impact on the S&P as compared to the two most recent crashes, the tech bubble implosion in 2000 and the, uh, the financial crisis of 08, 09. And so each crisis brings a different set of challenges and opportunities, but hopefully we'll find some of the lessons from today, um, from these guys' experience, will be applicable to what we're now going through. Excellent. And then just to build on Toby's comment of uh, plans are meaningless, but the planning process is relevant, uh, I think maybe the, the single best setup slide for today actually um, goes to one of the, the wise great thinkers of our generation, Mike Tyson. 
which is this notion that uh, we all sort of got punched in the mouth here over the last few weeks. Um, this actually was taken from a quote board on Pinterest. So uh, thank you, Ben, by extension. Uh, but really, whatever your plan was last month, uh, you can pretty much throw it out or um, it's time to revisit things because uh, the world just got a pretty big punch in the mouth and we need a new plan today. And so we called on these champions of the industry to, to give us that specific advice. You now know where they're at today as, as CEOs of, of you know, Decacorn multi-billion dollar public companies, uh, but they were all essentially sitting in your chairs uh, in 2008 at their times trying to lead their businesses through this. Um, and that's the, uh, the set of questions now we're gonna return to and dive in in more detail. So um, I'll, I'll start this off with a question to, to Toby. Um, so when markets go through disruptions like this, everything tends to grind to a halt. As you said, you throw your plans out the window, but in 08, 09, as you realized what was happening in the world around you, what did you focus on? Um, what did you choose to try to rally your team around? Yeah, so my, um, uh, my conviction was, I mean, this is hopefully true for all founders, but founders fundamentally imagine um, some product um, and then have sort of an assumption that the world is in some meaningful way different or, and potentially superior because that product exists. Um, I think this is a test one can always do against any kind of uh, shift in the landscape, right? Like if this, uh, like as I said earlier, um, Shopify was affordable, was good, was solid. Um, you didn't need to buy hardware or shrink wrap software. And um, uh, at its most fundamental, it'll get you more sales and um, uh, it'll represent your brand accurately on the internet. Um, it was like, when I took it back to most fundamentals, I said, hey, all of that is still going to be valuable after no matter how the world changes, I, I, unless the internet somehow ends up not being very important, which I, I, I was willing to bet on um, that that wouldn't be the case. Um, and so the question is, um, when, when, when things are really disrupted, what, what fundamentally happens is, is, is sort of like you're shaking a tree and see what, uh, see what fruits fall off, right? Like this is, you, you, you end up, like everything that isn't like really, 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 really tight based, based on fundamentals and physics to where it should be is going to fall down and, 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 and end up in a different place afterwards. Um, if your products end up fitting better into this, in, into the future, then they fit into the now, chances are you're, you're going to be good. But the path to get to building a product that you want to create has to shift. So when, when, this, when this happened, what we did, we, we ended up spending, like even though the reason why we built, why I built Shopify is because I, 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 I loved entrepreneurship. I, I built my own snowboard store on the same piece of software earlier version. And, um, I wanted to really, really help entrepreneurs, but even by this point, we actually had a good deal of customers uh, that, that were a little bit larger and have grown on it. And, and we said, okay, there's a lot of people who um, presumably might have lost their job and might actually want to engage in entrepreneurship. And we really ended up building everything we could to make it easier to start new businesses. Um, and that ended up becoming very like meaningful and has always since then been part of uh, like, or we have sort of reaffirmed our connection to that part of the mission and uh, 
it's uh, carried this all the way through. So we learned a lot about why we were actually in this about ourselves and the product has gotten significantly uh, better because it got forged in the fires of people who were disrupted in their lives by having lost their jobs and, 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 and as a unexpected plan B trying to build the business that they've always, like, like Ben was saying, that they've always been potentially encouraged by their friends and family to, 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 to give a go because they've found themselves a time on their hands. And both of people who are very different from the chief information officers who usually write software and that ended up being a major discovery and, and led to the Shopify of today. So, so Ben, it sounds like Toby, he had a vision and a product that was fundamentally doing what he wanted it to do. If I contrast that with, with you in the middle of this crisis, you actually, if I remember correctly, changed horses on the product altogether. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Toby, it sounds like was a lot more um, uh, measured and planful. I, I just really wanted to make something that somebody would use. <laughs> um, you know, I had an experience, one of the first things I ever made was a uh, was a website, it was kind of a quiz game. And we had this free automated tool. So if it went down, it would ping you. Um, but I didn't want to pay for the SMS, like Twilio wasn't around. So I just had it send me emails. And uh, I remember I woke up one day and my whole inbox was full of these pings, but no human being had noticed it was down. <laughs> I was like, wouldn't it be great someday to build something that a human being uh, was using and wouldn't care if it went down? Um, so we were really early, like I, I had this idea around uh, building uh, an iPhone app and we actually got the first version built, but we had enormous difficulty just getting it approved in the app store. This is super early days of the app store. I had grossly overestimated how many people were using iPhones and were as excited about them as I was. And I had grossly underestimated how challenging it was to build what I had envisioned, which was this super visual, relatively high, um, bandwidth uh, mobile shopping service, like 3G, the iPhone 3G had just come out. And so, you know, while we were literally waiting for approval, you know, I'd had um, kind of another idea for a product that was web-based. Um, and I started working on it uh, with my co-founders. And honestly, we, we did it partly as a kind of just a fun thing to do as kind of a joy while we were in this uh, seemingly sinking ship in this iPhone app that was never getting approved. And then later when it was approved, uh, never really being used. Uh, and at some point um, people started using Pinterest and it was very slow. Actually, the numbers were very small, but my expectations were also very low. And so I was just so incredibly excited that the people that used it really loved it. Um, and I actually remember vividly writing this email to these investors that we had gotten, many of whom weren't in tech, explaining to them that what they'd invested in was not what we were building. And I was so terrified. I thought they were gonna like demand their money back. Um, and it was actually such a relief because I didn't realize by then most of them had written the entire investment off. Uh, they, they already just had assumed it would go to zero. Um, and so they were really, they were really, really encouraging. Um, and so, you know, we're in a little bit of a different industry than, than both Toby and Jeff. I think that, um, with a lot of consumer products, when you look backwards, you can understand the human insight or the, I think physics, as you described it, Toby, that made it work. But uh, often looking forwards, it's really hard. Like, like looking backwards, it's obvious that Snapchat is an amazing idea. Looking forwards, I think it was hard for a lot of people to see that. Um, and I think Pinterest was in the same boat. And it's one of the things that made it hard for people to get. But, but I loved what, what Jeff said, which is if you do get a signal from customers that they really love it, really just like honing in on that signal 
and understanding like why do they love it and who are more people like them uh, that'll love it um, is something that served us really well. And, and we had an audience early of people that were not considered your kind of traditional tech early adopters. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of women who hadn't really felt well served uh, with internet products. Um, a lot of bloggers, uh, a lot of people where I'm from, from like the Midwest and, and from Iowa that really enjoyed um, a lot of the activities that are still popular on Pinterest today. And I would say just protecting and cherishing and, and always crediting into the, the bank with that audience of people that love you um, has served us really well as a company even today. And the, the first value of the company is put pinners first. And like, even to this day, I, I usually take a week off pre-COVID uh, to just travel to pinners homes in different cities around the world, just so I can sit with them in their home and understand what do they like? What do they not like? What is something that is going on in their life that doesn't come through in data or metrics or interviews? Um, and I do that partially so I don't become disconnected by being in Silicon Valley, um, in San Francisco, um, from what people are really doing. Um, so I think that that's always served us well. And it's something I try to really encourage in our company even today. And Jeff, uh, this was actually your second roller coaster ride. You were a founder of a business in the 2000 uh, wave that had successfully sold for a very large, large sum and then was a victim to the market crash then. In 08, are you thinking, oh, God, here it goes again? And was there anything you were doing differently having been through it the first time that maybe uh, can save some cycles and, and uh, some pain for those listening today in terms of best practices that you learned the hard way? You know, honestly, I, I didn't see a lot of parallels. You know, every crisis is different. And there's different root causes and there's different manifestations of the crisis. In 99-2000, I had a dot-com company that I had started while I was still in college. And our product was lecture notes for college kids. So we hired college students to transcribe lecture notes that they were taking in their courses, put them online, and we gave them away for free uh, to other college students. And we uh, started the company. It was We started the company in 96, I want to say. And uh, it, was, it was called notes number four, free.com. I always laugh because 1996, we could have had any domain name. Like we could have had google.com was available and we picked notes, number four, free.com. And, uh, and so our business model was, um, uh, was essentially aggregating eyeballs, which was the business model of the day. And we had in the entire life of the company, I think we raised about $12 million. Um, and the entire life of the company, we had about $11,000 of revenue. There was literally no focus at all on revenue or the fundamentals of the business. And believe it or not, we like nailed the business plan that all the investors agreed to because the, the uh, business plan did not focus on revenue generation. And so when I thought about the applicability of the um, you know, nine, uh, 99, 2000, the dot-com crash, like to me, my takeaway was, well, let me build a business that has, um, is based on fundamentals. And, um, uh, and so as we were starting Twilio in 2008, you know, I wasn't really worried about the lessons of, of the dot-com bubble because to me, it was all about creating uh, value for customers for which they would pay us. And that's one of the things about being a B2B company is that, um, you know, it's kind of a direct, more direct value proposition where if I'm providing value to you, you're going to pay me. And if I'm not, you won't, uh, as opposed to B2C companies, which have usually a more indirect um, uh, way of monetizing. And so that gave us a really clear line of sight towards like, great, if we're doing our job then we will know that this is working because customers will pay us. And 
for Twilio, we have a usage-based pricing model. And every month since 2008, when we launched November 2008, like every month has just kind of been an uptick from where we started. And so there was never a notion of like, well, you know, if we only got these 400 things right, then eventually we can turn into monetization. Uh, we can actually tell if we're building a business that customers value in real time because of the value of the, the revenue that we're receiving. And so I was sort of focused on, you know, customers, serving customers. And I think it's interesting as a, um, as a customer centric company, you know, a lot of folks uh, talk about being a customer centric company. And to them, it means, well, if we only listen to customers really well, we'll know how to build products for them and we'll succeed. And there's a lot of value in that. Yet I believe like as a truly customer centric company with it comes something of an obligation that when you see and you perceive customer problems, you have this like visceral obligation you feel to solve those problems and make your customers lives better in a way that you see. And I think that motivation kind of drives you through these times. And when you see the problems that your customers have and you have this business lens of if I solve valuable problems then customers will pay me. And I have this like almost moral obligation to solve customer problems when I see them to make their lives better. That instinct I think can guide you through crises. And like while customer problems have changed uh, in this crisis, you, it's not hard to argue that there's more problems that need solving right now, not less. And so when you have that sense of our job is to solve customer problems for which they will pay us, uh, the job then becomes, how do I discover the really hard problems that my customers are dealing with right now? And how can I make their lives better? And of course, it, so they will pay us is in some ways the hard part. Obviously, that's the hard part always in building products. But now you've got businesses who are also their livelihood is in jeopardy. And you have to figure out what is so valuable to them that they will be able to pay us during this time. And obviously, you're not trying to like um, focus on like you know, over monetization or gouging or anything like that, but you are saying we're running a business too. And so we have to survive so we can serve customers so that they can survive. And figuring that out is really the key to building uh, to building a business. And I think, you know, this is the B2B uh, manifestation of it, as I described, you know, Ben's probably got more of the B2C perspective on that, but it ultimately it comes down to the same thing. When you feel that obligation to serve customers, there's more ways than ever to serve customers right now. So, so we're going to transition to um, to teams for a minute. We're going to try to hit on a few topics in our remaining time. Um, you know, people often talk about market cycles and whether there's a good time to build a business or a bad time to build a business. Given that each of you started a business or built a business at a very early stage, right through the last recession, it suggests that at least that's not necessarily a signal of a bad time to build a company. Um, and up until very recently, probably the hardest thing to do for all companies was hire really great people because there was such a shortage. Um, and so many jobs available. That's probably changing now, but can you put yourself back to 2008 or 2009 when it was probably uh, more like it is as of April 2020 than of January 2020? And were there, <clears throat> there specific things you did to go get great team members or specific things you, you wish you had done at the time? And uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll start with Ben this time. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, so we, like, we were really small. Um, and you know, like one silver lining is um, when when things are really bleak uh, and when uh, your company doesn't really have any perks other than the product they're building, uh, you get people that really want to be there. And I know Jeremy, you visited our first office. I mean, I think I think saying that, that it was, was no frills. That was a dump. <laughs> yeah, um, it was like not an exaggeration. It was a dump. But uh, 
I don't know, we, we kind of like sold all of our uh, like warts as features. Uh, and we said like, this is what it is. And we're like, you know what's great? Like you can have any computer you want as long as you bring your own. Uh, and uh, you know, you can, you can work uh, uh, you know, in this really cool work live space, which was like not cool at all. And um, the way we recruited is like, we had a barbecue every Friday uh, and you was like, bring your own food. And the people that showed up eventually a lot of them became became our our employees um and I, I remember vividly like one of um one of our first engineers he moved from utah and uh he visited this this like kind of dumpy two-bedroom apartment there were like all these guys living in this apartment and uh, i asked him years later i'm like why did you join us like it was like so gross in there and he's like that's what i was looking for and there's some people and they're hard to find but they're easier to find now but they're not looking for a guarantee of success. They're looking for the chance to solve problems and be part of something really on the ground floor. And those people I still cherish to this day because they set the tone uh, for what the culture is and the good times and bad times. Uh, and so I, I, really, I really would sort of embrace two things. Like one is I would embrace the hard things as a screening mechanism for who's in this thing for really the right reasons. Um, and then I would embrace your own ambition to build something big. Like there's an irony to the fact that it's easier to recruit great people by promising you're going to solve an incredibly hard problem and you need their help than it is to pretend that you've got it all figured out. Like the really great people are too smart to know, uh, to think that you've got it all figured out, but they're up for being part of a team that's forthright about that. And I think that served us really well in the early days. And, and candidly, it's something that, um, I always want to remind kind of our recruiters of like almost like don't oversell like tell people like these are the problems these are the good parts these are the bad parts but make it clear that even if you're brand new uh, you can be part of building something better than it is today toby you, you know ben was doing this in the heart of silicon valley where everybody knows what startup life is you were doing it in a government town in canada wherever that is uh, what, what did you do from a team building perspective like, uh, while, uh, while we were talking about this, I, I've been trying to think back if I actually hired anyone during the, the actual time of the um, uh, downturn. I don't think I did. I had, I think we had nine people going in and we had nine people sort of on, 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 on the upswing. Um, I mean, I definitely laid the groundwork to hire many people later do, do, during those times who sort of observed the company. But um, to me, this, was, this ended up being um, I mean, I, I think everyone's seen sort of a little bit of, of this language being thrown around. There's like uh, wartime leaders and peacetime leaders. And um, uh, I, I've just, I, I don't know if those are the best terms because I think they're sort of like predictable stability leaders and, and I think chaotic, um, adaptable leaders. Um, and uh, that kind of, I think, proxies reasonably to, to, to these terms. And I, um, I like chaos. I, I just, I, if, if I don't have it, I create it. Um, and I, I admitted that from the beginning of the Lehman thing, which I said like, hey, I, I started this company to figure out what I can do when I'm applying myself. And because I think this problem is interesting and like and curiosity, like just sort of led us to building this company. This is like, we'll all learn so much more about ourselves in the next year than we will otherwise would be able to do in, in a decade. Um, and we, we kind of sort of said, okay, like that was 
they, they, they made it, I, I, like, I would say everyone who was at Shopify kind of took this personally. Um, and um, with that, we leaned into sort of a task we had and stopped everything else, including hiring, and just tried to build the best thing and use every moment we had uh, into the, to the benefits of the goals we set. And that's how we ended up uh, with that. Now, part of this is probably is location, like hiring always involved, like almost universally involved, either taking someone out of university and, complete, and training them or relocating someone from somewhere else in the world. Both those things lead to productivity a year down the road. Um, and so um, once you say, okay, we will have to do things that matter right now during this time of uh, crisis or opportunity, depending on how you look at it, um, uh, those, neither of those two things were, was terribly appealing. Great. And, and uh, on the, the context of how do you build it and fund it, a number of the questions that have come in and uh, that people have steadily asked is to double click on the financing lessons learned um, to understand, you know, how big of a team can you build and do lean into those elements. Uh, Bessemer was very fortunate to be seed or Series A investors with Pinterest, Twilio uh, and Shopify in this period, which we know was during this, this massive recessionary pullback. And yet, uh, a lot of the, the activity will slow when we heard, Ben, your story of how you staged your, your financing and it took the business plan competition and then one by one with angels. Uh, and I think, Jeff, you said you literally were in the middle of, of you know, the Sandhill pitches when, when Lehman shut down. And so can you guys get specific? And maybe, Jeff, we'll start with you on what advice would you have for someone that maybe has had a lot of these meetings shut down or maybe is at the seed stage and was just about to go out to friends and family? Uh, or maybe even before that is about to leave a job to go do this in a recessionary period. Uh, how tactical can you get for them in terms of how to think through it and, and who to go to uh, to finance these early stages? Yeah, I think um, first of all, I would say that customers are a great way to finance the business. But if you can get customers to pay you um, and pay you ahead of time, even to build it, like if, especially in B2B and enterprise type settings, like if you have the ability to get a customer to sign a contract and actually pay uh, at least a portion of it upfront, get customers to finance the business. That's like the best way to do it. There's no dilution. You, it's not debt. You don't owe the money back. It's just money that's called revenue. It's the best kind of money there is. Um, and so that's the first thing. And I think that um, in times like this, that is probably the number one because it actually does double signaling. First of all, it, it gets you uh, the ability to fund and the company, you know that you have a strong interest. I mean, that's the strongest kind of interest from a customer if they're willing to pay you ahead of time. Uh, and of course, it's signaling to investors when investors are ready to uh, invest in the company. So it's actually not double, it's triple duty. Um, so that's the first thing that I, that I would say. Um, the second thing is friends and family are probably in any market, really, uh, the, the best folks to go to for your first money because they're the ones who know you. You, know, you can go pitch uh, strangers, you know, professional investors, and like you, you know, you may get a hit, you may not, but like they don't know you from anything. And uh, the people who know you best are actually the best people to uh, turn to if you're fortunate enough to have a network uh, of folks who are able to. And it doesn't have to be huge checks, even small checks um, can get you started and uh, can build a culture of frugality early in the company. And I think that, you know, one of the things that happens during, you know, downturns and people often look at businesses um, that were founded during, during downturns and 
you know, there's some, sur some survivorship bias to like what people look at and there's companies founded in every period basically. Um, but I, I do think that during uh, downturns, there's two things happen. Number one, you get founders who have a deep commitment and have a lot of resolve that like building the company and building the product is what they really want to do. Uh, and that sense of, of commitment and conviction for the uh, act of entrepreneurship, but also for the company you're building and for the, the product and the customers that you're serving is deep. And so tap into that. Um, but the other thing I think is that during downturns, uh, companies often are founded out of necessity with a strong sense of frugality. And uh, frugality has long been one of the toil values um, in the sense that you uh, have to spend money incredibly wisely. Now you still spend money, but you're very wise and you think about every dollar you're spending and whether or not it's a wise use of money. When you think about um, the first money that Twilio ever raised was actually uh, from our parents. And we raised a small amount of money from the three founders' parents. And uh, when you're actually operating with your parents' money, like you better believe that you are uh, thinking about how you're spending every dollar. And then that founding DNA of the company then persists forever as far as uh, the way you think about money. And I think that that's the way that, to start. You know, we launched Twilio with $30,000 in our bank account. And that felt like a lot to us. Um, and so, you know, I think going to the people you know, if you uh, have the luxury of being able to turn the people in your network of people who've known you, you know, probably your whole life to some degree, um, and there could be the first people and then build from there. And from there, you can build product, you can build customer relationships, uh, and you can, um, uh, and, and build a strong culture of how best to use money. And, and I completely recognize that a lot of people may not be in a position uh, to even get some, some smaller checks from people in their network. Um, but that's kind of what networking is about, going out and finding who might those people know, who might those people know. But if you don't have that ability, customers, customers are the ultimate source of money to fund the business. And you can get them to pay uh, if you're solving a big enough problem for them. And Jeff, there, there are two awesome things that I want to expand on. One, your comment on frugality and culture. Uh, coincidentally, we actually just published uh, the podcast where you dive into this in more detail, uh, Cloud Giants on the Bessemer website, so people can uh, hear that in more it's detail. Here now. Uh, exactly, buy it now. Uh, uh, so you can download it, and, and you talk more about that. I think it's definitely worth a listen because that has been a fundamental uh, Twilio value all the way through, not just uh, an April 2020 statement. And then this family money thing, I want to come to you, Toby, because I, I think not only do you have uh, some sense when it's your parents' money, but I think in your case, you actually went to your father-in-law for a loan. So when it's your spouse's parents' money, I've got to imagine there's even more sensitivity there. For people that are thinking about, you know, do I quit my job, empty my bank account, and or go to family for money, or do I keep doing this cushy thing, and they're on that, you know, that cliff about to jump off. What advice do you have? It worked beautifully here for you, but you know what was going through your mind at the time? Yeah, the problem. I mean, the, the problem with pens like this is always like, uh, like I mean, clearly all three of us uh, like have been incredibly lucky, and, and there is an enormous amount of survivorship bias for being on this panel right now here. Um, so, the, the the question is. You're also humble. We'll give you credit for the, the best practices, which is what the audience is eager to pull from. But uh, your humility uh, persists. Absolutely. I, I think Jeff and Ben did a really good job like talking about some of those things which might, you, you, uh, ideas you might have because you got lucky, but which then ended up making a long uh, difference in the long run. I think um, like induced frugality from the lack of any kind of money um, and maybe a recession some point doing funding is one of those kind of things which um, 
if you then later raise money, like when you raise money, you will always get like the, the, the funder will always get a lot more of what the company was already doing. So if it was frugal at the point of funding, that's that's a really good thing. Um, but yeah, in my case, uh, I had uh, friends and family money uh, in like in the company to to, to uh, uh, fund it initially, and then during the recession, um, it's like instead of having to let a few people go. Um, my father-in-law wrote, like, with a government bureaucrat salary, wrote uh, uh, checks for meeting payroll to to keep the company where it is. Partly because he believed so much into the value of of of, of what we are building. And I see a question here in the Q and A, uh, Toby. What is the email address of your father-in-law? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it worked out very well for him, but. That created some anxiety around uh, the, the dinner table for a little while. <laughs> and, and if I'm not mistaken, Toby practiced some of Jeff's frugality in that, uh, it, was it true when you did your Silicon Valley fundraising trip, there was no Uber? So can you tell people how you got around? Yeah, I, I, I bought, um, I mean, this, I think this is useful and I, I'm sure you all have sweet stories, but um, I was in Silicon Valley and I, I bought a bicycle on Craigslist and I was staying at a hostel and this is how I got to this, like, it's actually hard to bicycle, like, to Central Road, it turns out. Um, and um, uh, but uh, like back back home, we, we we moved in with my parents-in-law. So like my fun, the person who was funding the payroll uh, was also on the dinner table. I mean, it was it, we we just tried to get all costs to zero. Um, you know, no salaries or anything like that. Um, uh, maybe could avoid it. So we're going to go to one, one last question, then we'll try to call some of the actual questions from the audience. Not related to Toby's father-in-law. But if you think back to 2008, 2009, we'll start with Ben again this time. Was there a specific piece of advice that you got that stuck with you? Or was there a piece of advice you wish you had gotten at the time that you care to share with everybody here? Well, you know, I didn't receive this advice, but like, you know, I was thinking about Byron's question, if you're kind of teetering on the brink of like a job or you're going to leave. And people, especially like these days, they have like kind of a they kind of have like a, a lionization of these stories of people who put everything on the line and it happened to work out okay. And I was thinking back to a lot of my friends whose companies didn't work out. And, and some of them uh, were because of money um, and some of them were because they didn't quite get the product market fit. Actually, a lot of them though were because um, the founders like didn't take care of themselves uh, and then they burnt out. And burnout could mean that uh, they lost motivation because they weren't sleeping or they put themselves into a situation that just wasn't like healthy for them and their family. And I guess I would, I guess I would just say that like, uh, if you're a founder, kind of your ability to build a successful company turns on your ability to take care of yourself and the people that are very important around you. And that means that prioritizing the things that you have to prioritize, especially now, like uh, every crisis is different. This is a health crisis. Um, I think you actually have to put that number one. And that could mean delaying actually and staying at your job and, and supporting uh, your family in the way they need it or doing it at night um, or putting it off. But I, I don't think that uh, people should be ashamed of that. And I know, especially when I was founding my company, there were all these blog posts about how cool it was to like not sleep at all. And like, I didn't have health insurance and all this stuff. And I actually don't think that's cool at all. Like that's, that makes no sense. It's, it's like super reckless with your health and with the people that care for you uh, and with, maybe employees that are depending on you. So I would just say to take that stuff really seriously. And I would say that especially now because 
I feel people have so much anxiety and uncertainty with what's going on in the world that to just stack more and more pressure uh, on your plate may not be the right thing uh, for you to do at the right time. And, and that's okay. You know, you have to you have to play the hand that's dealt. And right now, a lot of people in the world have been dealt a really a really hard hand. Awesome. You you should know, Ben, that uh, a number of the audience folks are coming in saying thank you for mentioning the the human side of this because uh, I do think there's sort of a bravado to the no sleep, you know, go through it, and and that's not sustainable. You, you put your your team, your family uh, at risk by doing it. Um, Jeff or Toby, would you uh, add any thoughts to uh, to the same question? Toby. All right. Well, well, here we've got a backlog of uh, over 600 questions that have come in from the audience. If uh, so, maybe we'll we'll jump into that. Uh, a few of those, um, and they were clustered in a few key areas, but um, one that came up repeatedly was this idea of kind of offense or defense or survival versus expansion. Um, Mikhail from Sonic Jobs, R from Service Titan, Samir from Cambly, Mike from Drone Deploy, many others. Um, I'll use Ara's words here, which were, how do we balance preserving cash versus investing in big opportunities we think will be available when the world returns to normal? And it's this idea of, when everyone else is in retreat mode, should you be leading in? Um, if your sales and marketing folks don't have much to do, should you repurpose them? Do you always invest in product and it'll always be rewarded? How do you think through those trade-offs? Um, maybe Toby, we'll start with you since you had a business that was sort of already existing as, as the, the headwind hit. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I have general advice. I can tell you how I'm thinking about it. I, I, I do think that every company has to uh, um, um, uh, book like significant percentage of uh, R&D has to work on what we call infrastructure, and then a certain percentage has to work on features. The way that works is like basically features are things where you take the infrastructure you build and you try to make something immediately useful out of it. Um, this functions a little bit like infrastructure is the gasoline you put in an engine and the features uh, work is sort of like revving the engine and how quickly do you want to go. I tend to be very infrastructure heavy um, and, and, and like building a lot ahead. Um, and during these times, you want to ship a lot and you want to like, combine all the things that you've built in the back offices in, in novel ways in such a way that they immediately become useful for people in the situation. Um, that's, I think, the best way to think about it. It depends entirely on a company and you should never stop looking for the future. You, you need some people who have long-term view um, just for the story, I think, because otherwise, everyone starts becoming too uh, myopic. Jeff, any thoughts on the offense versus defense trade-off? Yeah, I have, a, I have a, a general answer to that question, which should apply to every company, which is how much cash do you have? And that's the answer to the question. Um, if you could survive, like survive, like being on offense is great un unless you die, uh, in which case, you know, it didn't matter. And so what you need to do is plan for, and I think what I would say is like, look at how much cash you have. Um, imagine, you know, you know, your, your industry, the customer you're serving, you probably can already see now that we're more than a month into this crisis, you can probably predict some extent what's going to happen to your revenue. And so take whatever the worst case scenario is, make it worse, and then look at your cash and say, can we afford to be on offense right now? Or do we have to uh, be more conservative? And that's a different uh, question. Uh, the answer to that question is different for every company because it depends on your market, what you think is going to happen to your revenue, as well as what your cash position is today. And um, if you can afford to, then certainly I think folks would say that investing through um, uh, a crisis will make you stronger when, when you emerge. Um, and so that is, of course, a luxury uh, to be able to do if you can. 
Um, but I think that like some people just clamp down into full on fearful mode. I don't think that that is necessarily the, the right way to build a company for the long term. Uh, and other people may charge blindly into the like, you know, Leroy Jenkins and just charge into the cave and like not look at their balance sheet first. Or I wouldn't do that either. Um, I would take a good look at your balance sheet. I would do some scenario modeling. And also, by the way, believe that you have no idea what's actually going to happen with just scenarios um, and plan accordingly. But uh, you should be as, as bold as your balance sheet allows you to be. So a few folks were asking about um, leadership and, and setting the mentality of the company. There was Rachel from Productable and Denise from SVNED. Um, and maybe I'll use Rachel's words. The, the question was, how do you balance, what specific things do you do to balance optimism and pessimism, where you want to keep people excited about what you're doing, but you also want to make your team aware of the fact that there are se severe constraints? So what are some of the things that you did or what are some of the messages you communicated? Maybe Ben, we'll, we'll try, try you first here. It's a really, it's a really good question. And it's a, it's a, it's a tricky balance. I mean, I can tell you that, um, think about it in a few different areas. Like I think, I think one, you have to meet people where they are. Um, you know, we have, we have employees like in cities like New York, um, employees that are worried about family. And so if you don't acknowledge where they are, I think it's very hard to know the right method of communication. Don't and after that, are, Ben, just social distancing. <laughs> true, true. Uh, um, I just know where they are, kind of like emotionally in their life um, and personally. Um, and then, and then after that, you know, I think that you know what I what I try to remind my team is a few things. Like one is that um, why the mission that they're on matters now. Um, why does it matter now more than ever? Um, even if it means there are aspects of how people are using services that are different, and so making sure that people understand how to interpret their purpose in this context is important because it gives them a sense of purpose and connection. Um, second is I'm super, super direct about what's going on with people. And I kind of have this expression that, you know, you plan for the worst uh, and then you work like hell to, to achieve a better outcome. But I don't try to whitewash anything because people are super smart. Like we don't hire dumb people. Like they, they read the same paper you read. And so I think that one of the worst things that can happen is if you erode your own credibility by not treating people like worldly smart adults because they know what's going on and what they're looking for you as a leader is not is not having every answer at hand they're looking for somebody to help lead into an uncertain situation and give people direction and purpose and clarity so those are kinds of the things that we we i try to do and uh and i get feedback on when when that is landing well and there's sometimes that you miss the mark and then you just have to own that and, and try to do better next time yeah. I think one thing which makes uh, sense is like also just the, 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 the cadence of communication is, is really important, right? Like um, doing uh, like in, in, in the previous world, we all just emerged from like about a month and a half ago. I did like one AMA every two months or something like this. I, I have since taken over all town halls uh, and I'm uh, posting videos very frequently. And just, uh, in our case, we, we made the decision just like we have default to open as a, a value and everyone is massaging the messages uh, in the in sort of public communications. We, we've decided like, let's tell everyone the newest thing we know and be really, really like, like, let's be a stream of information. And it's been very good, I think, to have that conversation like in the company. Yeah, this is a really, 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 really tough time. We can't help with the humanitarian crisis um, because we didn't become doctors, nurses, um, or any of uh, those heroes. Uh, but we can have an impact on the economic crisis, which follows by helping more of our of small businesses survive, which are hit very hard. To Ben's point, we have to work like hell on that. 
and uh, everyone understands this. And Toby, for context, those are weekly now, essentially all hands meetings, or what's the, the cadence there for folks to take away? Uh, we have a pretty good big team that produces town halls, which, which are fairly high quality uh, broadcast affairs. I, I have replaced both with just a, a live streaming Google Hangout because every, everyone now has to work on things that are really, really important and, and, and some nice to haves uh, we, don't, we just don't have time for anymore and get everyone to work on what matters to, to millions more businesses that we serve. Excellent. We, we certainly are getting a lot of uh, questions about crisis communication, so that's helpful. I want to end by giving each of you the chance to answer kind of two related questions. Uh, the, the first is, in addition to all the leadership you're, you're showing for your companies and, and in your regular lives and families, et cetera, uh, you are also trying uh, to have impact in the community. And uh, Toby, as you noted, though uh, most of you aren't doctors and, and nurses and the like, you are trying to have impact in the community. And so I, I would like each of you to comment in terms of how you're leading uh, with the business into the crisis. And maybe Ben, we'll start with you. And then the second piece, uh, if you could answer at the same time, is, is just any parting thoughts, more building on that, that idea of if you were to synthesize a few takeaways or um, if you were you know, the founder of the business again or looking back on the 2008 experience, kind of how you would be approaching this period to, uh, to still be on offense, but also cognizant of a very different reality right now. So maybe Ben, could you set the stage? Yeah, I'll answer the second part first, just because you just said it and I remember it. You know, I think I think that uh, Jeff Jeff's insight at the very beginning, which is like if you follow what customers' real needs are, um, everything else will follow. And so while everything is dynamic, um, if you go work backwards from what people are experiencing and what problems they need to solve, I think everything else follows naturally from from that. Uh, your first question was more about like what we're doing on the COVID side, and you know, on the Pinterest side, we're doing a lot uh, in terms of. Um, everything from donations to making sure we're distributing um, really accurate, up-to-date medical information to making sure people have access to like emotional well-being exercises um, that we designed with some doctors down in Stanford. Um, on the personal side, you know, I just launched a nonprofit. I'm going to give a pitch, um, pitch to everyone. Oh, please and do. We were hoping you would. Yeah, the nonprofit um, is called How We Feel. So it's an app um, that I built uh, in partnership with a bunch of scientists at MIT. Um, and at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and the premise of the app is you can self-report how you're feeling. You just type in your zip code and your symptoms. Yep, that's it. And uh, um, the reason that data is super important right now is because um, there's so little testing that people are basically flying blind. Uh, and this is an approach that worked quite well in Israel. Um, and so we worked with some of the folks at Weizmann, um, but it's totally like a nonprofit. The data is not connected to Pinterest in any way. But I think if there's enough data, it'll become really important both now to have a real-time feedback on where there are early symptoms, but also in the future as you try to return to work and you try to make some of those hard calls. Um, and then just to make it feel like people can do something. In addition, if you check in and contribute the data, um, we'll also, um, I'm funding a meal for through Feeding America uh, for every new check-in. Um, so if anyone here has ideas on how to spread the word, it's only in the US right now, we're internationalizing it really quickly. Uh, but we just need more people to use it. Um, and I think if we do, it'll provide genuinely valuable data that's being used by a lot of the top medical researchers in the world now. So please go check it out. Howwefeel.org. That's my pitch. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Jeff, uh, so same two questions, the, the, the Twilio broader response and then any parting advice. Yeah, it's actually um, interesting. On the, the Twilio's broader response, um, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, 
you know, we've seen the developers of the world stand up at a wide variety of organizations, uh, nonprofits, for-profits, governmental entities, cities, health departments, I mean, you name it. And developers are responding to this crisis by doing what they do, which is building and serving their constituents. And so we have, uh, you know, the first thing that we've done is to make sure that our product is, is available to be used uh, for those who are on the front lines and, and who are either uh, uh, the front lines of the economic crisis, the front lines of the health crisis, um, and be able to serve the people around them. Uh, and so we've created a million dollar fund to subsidize customers. We've created um, a substantial discounting. Uh, we've been able to work with the carrier ecosystem to zero rate uh, COVID related traffic. We've been able to turn around like new short codes for COVID related use cases that uh, typically the carriers take uh, 12 weeks to provision. We've been getting them done in one day. So there's a lot of things that we've been able to do to mobilize our teams to be able to um, help those who are responding to a myriad uh, aspects of this crisis. Uh, we've also committed to our communities uh, that um, uh, taking care of the communities in which we operate um, is you know, part of an obligation that we have as a business. You know, we operate as a for-profit business um, uh, because of the amazing societies that we're in, because of the amazing economic environments that we're in, and giving back and leaving those communities stronger is a strong part of the moral purpose of Twilio. And, um, and during a crisis, that's even more important. Uh, and so we've been uh, just helping to provide for the health and economic prosperity of the communities in which we operate via a variety of nonprofit and governmental um, uh, vehicles. And, um, and so those are some of the ways in which we've been um, uh, responding as a company. And as far as parting thoughts go for folks, you know, I would say, First, this too shall pass. And so take that deep breath every morning and help your companies to take that deep breath too. And there's a temptation as an entrepreneur, um, as a founder, to just kind of pedal the metal, even in an environment like this, and just kind of um, see what you can do as a business, as, as a um, as an entity, I mean, there's just like, there's a lot of opportunities and I'm just scared. And a lot of the reaction is just like, we got to do stuff, we got to do stuff, we got to do stuff. And actually, I'd say in, in some ways, it's like, actually slow down. Actually take care of your people. You know, I wanted to share, we, we write a, a thing called a BPM, which is our planning method that we use in, inside of Toyo. It's called the, it stands for big picture priorities measures. And it's like our planning system. And we wrote a BPM at the beginning of uh, the COVID-19 crisis, when it really started to get the apparent that this was going to be a big um, disruptor to, to, to the world. And I'll just read our big picture, um, which I think just kind of shows you how we made our plan. That was the beginning part. The big picture is like the goal of what we're trying to accomplish. This is relates to COVID-19 in particular. And the order of what I say matters. We prioritize within the, within the words what, what comes before what. Care for our employees and contractors' mental, physical, and financial health and protect the business from disruption. Weather the crisis in a way that builds trust as a trusted advisor to employees, customers, and our communities in their time of need. Invest and emerge from the crisis with a leadership strengthened as an employer, a vendor, and a competitor in the market. And so that's how we thought about it in order of priority. And I think that's, I mean, that's probably, there's something specific about our business in that statement. Um, and so anybody can use that or a similar methodology to write down what matters and to communicate it to your teams and your customers and your vendors and like anyone that you work with saying, here's how we are acting in this response. So I think that's a way to, to kind of 
take all the fog of confusion that's going on for everybody and just try to clarify it, put it down in words, and then you can reference back to it every time you need. Thank you. Toby? How do you follow that? Um, uh, I mean, what, the, the thing that I'm infinitely grateful for is like Shopify is like a solution that solves real problems in a, at, at the intersection of the digital world and, 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 and the real world largely. Um, like literally you click a button on a, uh, somewhere and uh, then like a package with atoms shows up. So we've always been sort of between the two worlds. Um, and uh, uh, right now people really, really, really need this sort of thing that we are uh, seeing um, like even community already did. And then we are now like productizing is that people are building uh, like like um, uh, these, these small little stores for their local businesses, so that they just can sell gift cards for now, just to so people can prepay for, um, uh, you know, even for the the, the, the haircuts or uh, things, and 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 just keep keep the businesses um, alive. Like most people, most jobs in the world are small businesses, and small businesses are have fundamental disadvantages in the fact that they don't have um, such, uh, like they don't have a collective advocacy for them. They are separate. Um, it's much easier to argue from a position of one big company than it is for many small. And so they end up being uh, often uh, uh, overlooked in these crises, even though they, 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 they are uh, large employers and they're very uh, fragile and, and compound. So like the role that Shopify plays and Shopify is holding to itself is, um, we want more small businesses to survive this um, pressure, this situation, because we exist and because of the things that we can do. And um, uh, so, uh, like we we we've we've done a lot. Like we we are take, trying to take our uh, capital product around the world so we can just give people money, which they need. We we are trying to um, we, like we we allow for free setup for three months just so that people can build these community stores. And, and 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 increasing the, uh, the investments and all these kind of things, we are we are we are seeing how much how important things like curbside pickup are. Like we are prioritizing these. So like like the company is kind of again using its infrastructure to try to prioritize the things that people are doing currently manual, um, because we all just learned something that's really important uh, like about the world. So that's uh, this side. On a personal level, I love that uh, um, that, that apps like Ben sound super super uh, good. I have so far. Um, spend a significant amount of my time talking to the heads of hospitals and uh, also governments because um, uh, what the tech industry like, what the tech industry knows or the way that the tech industry acts like like I've, I've never seen technology as a industry per se I've always seen technology as uh, a tactical move that just happens to work really well in the current times and now in fact what we see is we are on a world where basically everything that we did before the tactics of technology, the digital tactics came around, are no longer at all working um, in any meaningful way. Every hospital really needs to triage through the way the technology companies would and, um, and governments need to, and, and frankly, the rest of the world has to go digital by default, like trying to figure out where we, uh, we can have most impact quickly has is, is, been what I've been spending a lot of time on. I have a foundation and there's gonna, like, I'm gonna talk a little bit more and uh, just not ready yet about um, on, the, on this side. But I think it's, it's, a very, it's a crazy time and we all have to, I, I think we all have to look back at this time and say like, hey, did, 
the way we acted, yeah, can we be proud of that? And uh, I think ideally we, we, the majority of people say yes to that question and uh, um, react to it. Uh, this too shall pass is by way of engraving of my iPad Pro that I used to do most of my work on. So um, it's a very good sentence. Well, thank you guys tremendously. Um, 12 years ago at the last crisis, you were running itty bitty companies. Now you're running large companies. And so the fact that you're willing and able to take an hour out to share your experiences and words of wisdom with a group of uh, current entrepreneurs is, uh, is immensely appreciated by all. So thank you again, uh, this was great. Um, uh, we'll have one, one parting slide and, and wrap up, which is just a bunch of resources. If anyone wants places to look for uh, other things that might be helpful, um, there's some links and so forth that you might find useful, but uh, really appreciate it. Um, feel free to send follow-up questions or, or comments to the email at the very top right of the presented screen and uh, wish everybody uh, uh, safety and, and health in the days ahead. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Byron. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Best of luck, everybody. Bye-bye. Okay, that's a wrap on another great show. A huge thank you to Toby, Ben, and Jeff for offering the time and advice. If you want to read the top takeaways or watch the video, you can find more information and links at bvp.com forward slash cloud. All the links they reference will be in the show notes. And before I go, I also want to acknowledge that these three founders are contributing time, resources, and energy to helping on the COVID front lines. We see Ben's application with the How We Feel nonprofit, Shopify's extended services and relief for small businesses, and Twilio's major donations of their product and money to the local community. And those are heartening examples of these great founders leading in community support as well as cloud. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of Cloud Giants. Stay healthy and sane, and I hope to have you back for our next episode.